Justice Tech Pros here. Today's episode is a little different where it relates to one of the subject matters I'm going to discuss. Normally, I'll pick a topic, whereas I can also cite facts and figures and maybe a few studies to give a, a um, closer examination of exactly what I'm trying to discuss and what I'm trying to convey to the listeners. Today's more of a an idea and more of something to think about. It's like an ideology type subject. One of the topics is is a subject that's more where it's really just something to think about and it's something that I was thinking about and I wanted to share it with the listeners cuz I f- I just found it interesting. And I'm hoping that the listeners do as well, that you guys uh, find it as interesting as I do. And what it is, is when it when it boils down to the topic of secret societies, as we know, there's many secret societies uh, throughout the whole world. But within the United States, you know, there's some that, that pop into my head and some that I printed some information out about, some that I never even heard of. One of the more popular ones is the Skull and Bones. Uh, then there was a couple I never heard of that's called the Trilateral Commission, Bohemian Club, and Family, the Freemasons, which is also uh, quite prop, uh, popular, the Bilderberg Group, and there's a, there's a few others, but the point just is, one thing I was thinking about, when it relates to these secret societies, as I always said, it's not against the law to be a member of these uh, secret societies. But unfortunately, what happens in a lot of these trials, I think jurors get confused, and the way the picture is painted to them, and the way the jury charge is so extensive and confusing, which I'm actually going to get into later, that's uh, another topic I wanted to touch on, but they'll convict somebody based on the belief that they feel they are a member. And in their mind, they think that's what you got to convict on. So my point is, just something to think about. If you ever notice, when you have these other organizations, they also have structure, and they have people within the organization holding different positions of power. And I was reading in one of these, uh, in one of these articles, it was actually from the History Channel, and they were talking about the structure of the skull and bones, and they were saying how John Kerry and both George Bush, George Bushes were uh, uh, supposedly higher up within this society. And then it got me thinking, well, okay, if there is a structure like that, and now, you know, going through my searches, and you see individuals through the years who were alleged members of the skull and bones or another organization... You never once seen that as part of the headline. You know, you never saw alleged member of the Skull and Bones indicted for whatever. And the other interesting fact is they're never charged as a member of that enterprise. And they don't try to link in other members of that secret society as they do with our other organizations. Uh, for example, as they do with organized crime, where they'll try to link in alleged members... They'll try to tie them in if they're trying to get, and they're trying to target certain individuals. They'll try to lump them together, and that's where they hit them with the RICO, which I've talked about in prior prior episodes, 
where they'll try to hit them with that just to tie everybody together. And you never see that play out when it comes to these other organizations. It's They'll pick and choose which organization to use that for. And what I want listeners to think about, it doesn't matter what you think of these different secret societies. Um, again, I try to just talk to... Th- talk about things more analytically and just to kind of digest it and understand it so the concept that I get from it and I know my chain train of thought wasn't that far off because I'm going to read you a quote from a news story done about it that kind of relates to this but my train of thought is what shouldn't it be the same set of standards across the board so if you have members of like this trilateral commission I was I was reading how Bill Clinton's on it Jimmy Carter George H.W. Bush. And you have all these different things, you know, skull and bones. You have uh, both George Bush and uh, uh, John Kerry. So now if you have a, a, a member of the skull and bones who gets indicted, wouldn't, if the same rule applies across the board, wouldn't they call in the other members? Wouldn't they be charged as well? Wouldn't the higher ups be charged as well? Now, I know it's a little bit out there, the concept, but if you think about what I'm saying, the foundation should make sense. In other words, it should be the same set of rules across the board. So if it happens for one, it should happen for all. But as I I was talking about, when do you ever see that? You know, you never see a headline that says alleged member of Skull and Bones indicted. Um, I don't know what the ranks are, but they don't go through the ranks of other members and try to tie them in. They'll just pick and choose certain organizations, and then they'll hit them with these different laws, this RICO law, and try to tie them to an enterprise. And I, and I find that interesting. I, I, I don't know. You know, it's something that puzzles me as well. You know, obviously there's some high powerful individuals in some of these societies I mean especially in the skull and bones I was reading some of these names and there's some very influential powerful people so I'm not naive I'm sure that has something to do with it but my point just is for the American people you should just look at these things and realize that if all the rules aren't applying if there's a set standard and a set book of justice and a set book of laws, they should apply to everybody across the board equally to guarantee everybody gets a fair trial, to guarantee everybody gets a fair defense and, you know, just really, you know, it's a a level playing field. And obviously that's not the case. Uh, It's not a level playing field. And that's the whole point of even this discussion. It's just something to think about, just something further to show that the rules aren't the same for everybody. The rules are used or not used based on who the target is. It's whatever fits the narrative, and that's the cards that are played. Whatever card needed to fit the narrative and to obtain the target and to obtain an indictment, that's what's used. And that's a problem. And the, you know the American people should realize that, that that's a problem. Because re- regardless of your belief system, you should believe in the Constitution, and you should believe everyone is entitled to a fair trial. And everyone is entitled to be judged the same way. And if you look at this, again, as I know, it's a little bit of a different type of concept. It's a little out there. But I'm just trying to drive home the point to show that it's not 
things are pick and chosen based on how they want to be used and for who they want to use them for. And it's funny because although I know it's a little bit out there, I wasn't that far off because I was reading a, there was a CBS story all about the skull and bones. What's interesting is the quote from the reporter of the story kind of ties into what I was trying to convey to the listeners. And the quote goes like this. I think Skull and Bones has had slightly more success than the Mafia in the sense that the leaders of the five families are all doing 100 years in jail and the leaders of the Skull and Bones families are doing four and eight years in the White House. So here, if you just look at it from the perspective that you have two secret societies, you have one which has powerful members in it uh, who are members of the White House, members of Congress, you know, I, I don't know all the different members, but they're all holding high, powerful, high-profile positions. And this, the fact that they're a member of the Skull and Bones never makes it into anything, not into any headlines, not into any articles, nothing, zero. But yet, then you have members of, alleged members of um, organized crime and as you know, headlines are everywhere. Second, somebody who gets arrested who's supposedly a member, that's the biggest headline of every newspaper, every local paper, depending on where the arrest took place. And that's all you see uh, sprawled across the news, all over the internet and everything. And then they'll bring in, as I said before, based on the apparent structure of the organization, they'll try to bring in different ranking members to tie one into the other, and they'll put it under RICO, and they'll put it under an enterprise. But yet the same rules don't apply to this organization, to the Skull and Bones or any of the other ones I mentioned earlier. You know, you don't see that playing out. And you'll see it with other organizations too, don't get me wrong. I'm not saying you don't. I mean, I'm sure with, you know, other uh, organizations that may have uh, committed a crime. But again, if you notice, there's not a, a straight pattern. It's hit or miss. It depends on what organization, and it makes you think who's going to get the headlines, and it also makes you think who are the individuals within these organizations. What kind of power do they have? What kind of influence do they have? Why would they be a target? Why wouldn't they be a target? And my whole point of this, as I said, this is something that's more of a, of a an idea. It's just something of a concept, and it's just comparing the whole concept of secret societies and it's just stressing the point how it's not illegal to be a member even if somebody's accused of being a member if they're you know being accused of being a member and they're supposed to be supposed to be an alleged member that's not a crime although juries are convicting based on that incorrectly they're, they're not understanding what they're there to do but that's not a crime and this shows it right here. I mean, you have members of the Skull and Bones who are the president and all these high-powered positions. So that shows it right there. It's not illegal to be a member of a secret society, but yet when it's certain organizations and they begin trial, the prosecution and the government tries to lead you to believe, lead the jurors to believe that it is a crime. And I just think that's just, I'm not, you know, that's really all I have to say about that. I just wanted it to be, the listeners to think about it and really put it out there because who knows, maybe you'll be on a jury one day and this will pop in your head 
and you remember that you cannot convict somebody for being accused of being a member, you have to convict them based on actual evidence and an actual crime that took place. And it's going to lead me to the second part of what I wanted to talk about today. And that was um, about, I always felt, especially with the last trial I was part of, I found the jury charge to be very confusing. It was over 90 pages. And what that is, is for those who don't know, uh, before the jury, you know, goes and deliberates, they're read a jury charge. And as I said, it was 90 pages where the judge sits there and reads the 90 pages of this charge. And the charge tries to, tries to break down how you must find somebody guilty. It kind of lays things out, tells you how you should find them guilty and what the charge means. And it's very, I mean, imagine hearing 90 minutes, 90 pages read to you. And it's very convoluted. It's very confusing. I mean, it even confused the lawyers in the room. And those are lawyers. Imagine the regular average citizen, which is insane to me. And it goes back to my point where, you know, I don't know how a jury should have no preparation before they're allowed to serve on a jury. You should have some kind of background or education, even some kind of class, where you got to make sure that whoever's on that panel understands what their duty is and understands what their obligations are and understands how to go by the law. So in my head, anyway, when I was sitting uh, and hearing these jury's instructions personally and I saw how confusing they are, the first thing that ran into my head was these jurors are going to get so confused, they're not going to know what they have to do and they're just going to convict. So I started digging into that concept And lo and behold, I found a lot of articles that confirm what I was saying where, I mean, one of the articles from the Irish Times, it says, jurors confused by instruction. And it says, less than a third of trial jurors fully understand a judge's legal directions. This was a study that was done. So think about that. Less than a third of trial jurors understand what the judge is telling them on how to convict somebody so somebody's life is in these jurors hands and they don't even understand the charges and how they have to convict that person but yet they go back there they deliberate and they either convict or or find not guilty I mean that's that's very disturbing when you think about that where the juror is actually confused and he you know here's another article this was from um This was actually from uh, April 14th, 2018. And it's from a article called Books and Art. And the title is Too Often Jurors Comprise 12 Confused Men and Women. So right there, tells you right in the heading. And it talks about when you're, I don't want to read the article and bore you, but when you read the article, it talks about how jurors really don't understand what they're being asked to convict on on some of these charges because the charges are so confusing, especially when you're dealing with uh, an organized crime case or RICO case where it gets very detailed. Even a lot of these white-collar cases where, you know, there's a lot of uh, uh, charges involved and you have to break down each individual charge. I mean, it's very confusing. 
And one would figure that that's a big problem, where you have 12 people going to deliberate who don't even understand what they're being tasked to do. And that needs to be rectified. And the way to rectify it is to educate the jurors. And I spoke about this, you know, many times where jurors need to be more educated, but I think that could also fall on, I think that shows and exposes how the system's broken. When you have these uneducated jurors who don't know what they're doing, or they're being instructed, they don't understand it, and they don't ask for clarification, and they just convict because they're confused, that's a major problem. You're throwing somebody's life away because you don't understand something. And the article goes on to talk about a, a specific individual and um, unfortunately, this individual was convicted. But what I found interesting, because I always harped on this and talk about this, where one of the representatives in the article says that this and other baffling instructions misled the jury into thinking that the burden of proof was on the defendant to prove himself innocent, not on the state to prove him guilty beyond a reasonable doubt. And that's the problem right there. And it's very true. When you hear a lot of these, the jury instructions and the charges, the jury charge where the judge reads it, that's exactly how it reads. It actually reads, whereas it switches the way the law is supposed to be. Whereas a person is supposed to be innocent to proven guilty. When they read that charge, it, it almost switches gears because it reads in a tone that gives the jurors the belief and insinuates to them that this person, the defendant, had to prove their innocence. And if they didn't prove their innocence, you got to find them guilty. And that's not the way it works. That, you know, that's, not, that's exactly why it's guilty or not guilty, not why it's guilty or innocent, because you, you don't have to prove somebody's innocent. The burden of proofs on the government or the state to prove that that person's guilty beyond a reasonable bout, a doubt. So even if you feel somebody may be guilty, but you're not convinced, you're not supposed to convict that person. You're not supposed to find them guilty. And how many jurors do you think really do that? How many jurors do you think really stick by that? Unfortunately, you know, they probably just in their mind say, well, we feel they're guilty, even though they didn't prove they're guilty. We feel they're guilty, we're going to find them guilty. And that's a major problem, and that's why a lot of people are in jail that are not guilty. It's also why a lot of people are in jail based on uh, weak cases. That's why a lot of people take pleas that really don't want to plea because of, of these all these factors, because all these unknowns, because you could have a juror who doesn't go by guilty beyond a reasonable doubt, you know, and, and is misled, and because the jury charge is so confusing... That after the judge is done reading it, the individual thinks that the defendant was supposed to prove they were innocent. And they say, yeah, they didn't prove they're innocent, so we got to find them guilty. But that's not how the law works. And it's almost as if the confusion is intentionally created. And the complexity of it is intentionally done. Because if you make something complex like that, from all these studies I'm reading, it seems like some people you know, just uh, side with the government or side with the state when they're confused. Now, me personally, I can't relate to that because if I'm confused about something, I want to get it in my head 
100% clarified before I make a decision one way or the other. And if I'm deciding on somebody's life, you better believe I'm going to make sure I understand that thoroughly. And if I don't, I'll ask a thousand questions. I'll go back and forth until I, to- until I do understand it. I mean, even myself, I knew the case in and out. And I'm sitting, you know, in the, uh, in the rows and I'm hearing the, ju- the judge read 90-something pages of this charge. And I got lost. And I had a hard time keeping up. And, I, and I've been living the case for three years and I had a hard time keeping up. And that's when I knew, you know, we were going to have a problem because I knew I could see it on the jurors' faces. They had no idea what she was talking about, what the judge was talking about. And that's a problem. I mean, there was even a study in the North Carolina Law Review, volume 67, number one, if you want to look it up, article 12, where it's jury instructions, a persistent failure to communicate. And the study's got, it's, it's a very detailed study, and it goes on to explain, I think it's about uh, 30-something pages, and it goes on to explain how because the jury instructions are so convoluted, they're not communicating to jurors what their job is, and they're not communicating the law properly and what the charges are, and because it's, it's, it's a persistent, a constant failure to communicate the instructions properly. And because of that, jurors are just not getting it right. They're not getting the they're just not getting it right. They're not getting the facts right. They're not getting their responsibilities right. So they're going into these things blind. And when I say blind, I just mean they're not understanding what they're there to do. And by not understanding, they're then reverting to the fact that, well, this guy didn't really or this girl didn't prove their innocence, so we're gonna find them guilty. And that right there collapses the whole system. That that thought process and that action collapses the whole system. It totally takes away innocent till proven guilty. And I spoke about that in earlier episodes. We already know that's a fantasy. There is no innocent till proven guilty. The second, unfortunately, you are arrested in the eyes of the media, in the eyes of a lot of people, you're guilty and you got to prove your innocence. So now on top of it, to have this other curveball thrown at you where you get an in-depth confusing jury instruction and a jury charge it's a serious issue and it needs to be addressed and it needs to be changed and for me you know it's easy to say what I would do to change these things but in reality I don't know how the system would look to change these things you know, they're not going to, a judge is not going to make it more clear unless you have a really fair judge up there. They're not going to, they're not going to make it clear. They're not going to make sure that everybody understands it. They're just going to read their charge and send the jurors in the back and have them deliberate. And whether it's intentional, it's not intentional. That's not the issue. What the issue is all of these things, all of these little puzzle pieces, they all fit into a puzzle that could, when completed, could be disastrous results because of all these little factors. You know, you get a factor where the government's not playing by the rules, things I spoke about with the discovery, you know, where they play the games with the discovery, all these things, you know, where they're putting uh, press releases out, They're, they're influencing the jury with the press release, they're planting subliminal seeds, 
They're painting you guilty. They're making you think that you're guilty if you're a member of some sort of organization or they're using any tactic to make someone think they're guilty. Then on top of it, you get a confusing jury charge, which is long and hard to understand. So now if you add all these things up and you think about it, that really switches things and it really tips the scales. And it, I know it's supposed to be, and the law is supposed to be the burden of proof is on the government or it's on the state. But when you think about all of these elements and all these factors that take place during trial, before trial, based on rulings, what's allowed in, what's allowed out, what experts are, are allowed in, what experts aren't allowed. You know, because that, that's another thing. I actually spoke about that um, in the interview I did where I said, you know, you may get an expert from the state or, or the government side, and sometimes the defense doesn't put in an oppositional expert. And it's not always because, you know, they didn't have one or because uh, there was no opposition. A lot of times it could be financial. You know, the defense, uh, the defendant just couldn't afford it, and you'll never see that side of it. So my point just isn't in regards to this, is when you add all those things up, it's a recipe for disaster. So you may have somebody who's innocent, but yet when you add up all of these tactics that are done and all of these things that are done, they paint them guilty in the eyes of the jury. They confuse the jury and they get the verdict that they're seeking. You know, and listen to me, this isn't, um, you know, convoluted ideas that I'm just throwing at you. This is supported by facts. And what I mean by that is how many wrongful convicted people are there out there just look it up just do an internet search on it your jaw will hit the ground when you see all of these people who are getting exonerated thanks to dna thanks to finding what you know if the informants on the case then came through and said they lied if it comes to light that somebody was corrupt i mean this isn't something i'm just making up this exists so obviously if it exists there's a problem correct i'm not just you know pulling these things out of thin air there's a legitimate problem because it exists. This is a serious problem. One convicted person's a problem. And there's a lot more than that in the United States. I mean, there's thousands of them. Wrongly convicted. Who knows how many people wrongly convicted on death row? Who know? That's a serious thing to think about. When you have somebody innocent, I mean, that's hard to wrap your head around. And you don't even understand it until you're going through the motions. And the moral really is that so many tricks, you know, uh, so many tactics, so many games can be played to swing the pendulum in favor of the government or favor of the state, and one don't even realize it's taken place. And that's a prime example of this whole jury charge thing. You know, you save that, that's that's done at the end of the, of the case after everybody rests, then the judge reads that to the jury before they do the deliberation. So now if you have an extensive charge, as uh, we did, uh, it was 90 pages, uh, close to or a little over 90 pages. Now that takes a long time to read. So you have 12 jurors sitting there listening to lingo and terminology they don't even understand. And charges they don't even understand. I mean, I, I spoke about that Pinkerton charge. That's a complex charge. It takes time to really understand that if it's being used correctly, how it's to be used. The RICO charge, 
that's another uh, a very extensive charge. You really need to understand that. And you got to have a good handle on it. You know, when I was interviewing attorneys to help, uh, uh, when I was interviewing attorneys to, to help my father, and I was asking some of them at the beginning to explain the RICO charge, they really couldn't explain it. I mean, obviously, I didn't go with them, but they couldn't explain it. And it just goes to show these are these are att- attorneys, you know, they're intelligent people, and they have a hard time explaining it. So if somebody, and it's not that they weren't um, smart, it's not like they didn't have a great hand on the law. What it was was if they really didn't have experience with that charge, it's very hard to understand it. So here you have guys who maybe 20, 30 years in the business, and if they don't have any experience with that specific charge, it's hard for them to understand it and hard for them to explain explain it to somebody. So imagine a jury and a juror, an individual juror who has no experience with that, and they're sitting in the jury box, and they're being tasked with finding somebody guilty of this complex charge. It's very scary when you think of it that way, and that's really the only way to think about it, but people don't see it. They don't see what really goes on. They read in the textbooks how the law is supposed to be, and by textbook, I agree. By textbook, it reads beautifully, it reads fair, and you would swear that everybody that goes in front has a fair trial. But as we all know, that is not the reality. That's not how things play out. And that's why there's wrongful convictions, and that's why there's convicting people based on the fact that you feel they didn't prove their innocence, which is wrong, based on the fact that you may feel they're a member of some alleged secret society, which is wrong, can't convict on that. But they're doing all these things because they're not understanding, they're not being instructed properly. And the the instructions are ridiculously complex, some of them. And whether it's intentional or not, I don't know. But it should be made in a way that is very easy for people to understand and very elementary. It really should be because they're judging somebody's life and you shouldn't complicate matters by making something so important, so difficult to understand. And again, my concepts aren't off base, particularly with this instance, because if you just look it up, about jurors being confused by instruction, there is article after article after article and study after study showing that many jurors, there was even some I was reading with the jurors afterwards, once they understood the case, they felt terrible because they felt that they convicted wrongly. I mean, it's crazy, you know, and then I read a few where you got some really intelligent jurors who they found the person not guilty and they actually said, we believe this person was guilty, but the the government didn't prove the case beyond a reasonable doubt, so we had to follow the law and find them not guilty. How many jurors do you think would stick to that? And that's what you're supposed to do, but unfortunately, I don't think many would stick to that. I really don't, and I give that person credit, because regardless of how they felt personally, they went by the law, and they found them not guilty because they said the government didn't prove their case. And that's the way it's supposed to be. But unfortunately, it doesn't play out that way. So that's really it for today's episode. I just wanted to kick those two things really around. I found the secret society thing very interesting. I know, again, it wasn't 
the norm as far as how I try to give examples and things like that. But I just found the concept very interesting, and I think it's something that people should just think about and potential jurors should think about and society should think about as a whole just to to understand what takes place and to understand how individuals and groups of individuals are treated and do the same rules apply across the board. And if they don't, it's something to think about. It's a problem. There's a website that I want to bring your attention to. I, I, I know um, my staff posted it on some social media and things like that, but it's uh, theitalianinquisition.com. And those behind it, those who are running it, are really onto something. They're doing it, uh, I don't know, I, th- I find it very interesting. I think they're doing a great job. And they're just showing, again, factual base. This isn't, this isn't somebody getting on their soapbox and complaining. This is factual-based events where they're comparing the law and then they're comparing what took place as it relates to the law. And that's how you could look at things. I mean, me personally, as an individual, of course, I have my beliefs on stuff, my strong feelings. Uh, obviously, if someone's a family member, I'm going to feel a certain way about it regardless. But when I'm on this platform, I try to look at it from a more neutral point of view so I can relate to the listeners, so I can give them examples on how to look at things while you remove your personal feelings. And it's not always easy. My feelings come across, but... I'm allowed that leeway on this uh, format because it doesn't impact anybody. And people could disagree with me. Uh, they could agree with me. They could disagree with me. But I do try to lay things out as fairly as I can and lay out the facts of it. And just try to show a different way of looking at it. Because I, I believe society sometimes they get so used to having the government tell them or the state tell them how things should be and how they should look at things. And we're starting to lose the whole concept of being a free thinker and using our God-given common sense. And that's what I try to stress on here because common sense, you know, that's something you can't learn from books. That's something you can't, you know, you have to have that. And if you could build on it by being exposed to different things and different situations, it's a great, a great quality to have if, if, if you could fine-tune that. So give that website a check. It's uh, italianinquisition.com. And that's it for today. I'll talk to you next time.